Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the unifying theory of network capital, which goes over how the politics of distraction work, how public opinion changes in the long term, and how we can work to make the government work for us. First of all, I'm going to do a little bit of a review. On the first episode of this podcast, the one on Black Lives Matter, I talked a bit about demographics and ideology. Now, if you recall, there are two types of demographics that are important to keep note of, swing demographics and captured demographics. Swing demographics are demographics that change from party to party depending on the election, while captured demographics are those with high loyalty to one party that overwhelmingly vote for that party year over year. Now, demographics fundamentally drive a lot of the emotional connections that form ideologies and the axiomatic beliefs that come with them. Now, this is an important factor because a lot of these axiomatic beliefs aren't necessarily based off of fact. Because of this, it can be extremely difficult to change the minds of some of those people who are entrenched in those ideologies. This is why you see an almost cult-like following of some strongman leaders, including Jair Bolsonaro and even someone characterized Donald Trump. This is due to an effect I like to call calcification. Political beliefs can form in one of two ways. The first is a calculation, looking at data and looking at your own priorities, those that are often shared with the vast majority of people, and deciding which policy choice would be most beneficial to yourself or to the people as a whole. The other is based off of an emotional connection, based off of the core appeal of an ideology to people's emotions and personal experiences, which forms an emotional connection between their politics and their personality. While this is a natural part of human life, it can have extremely negative effects on politics, because increased emotion means an increased amount of assumptions, and those assumptions sometimes can be wrong. All of us make mistakes, and when we're emotionally attached to those mistakes, then you see instances of people denying science, as you see with anti-vaxxers or even anti-maskers, and you can see increasing polarization, where people escalate their beliefs to more and more extreme degrees. To make matters worse, the incentives are in the wrong place, since it's actually more efficient for politicians to appeal to people using these primal baseline appeals than it is to actually construct logical policies. Of course, you are going to have people who are more and less aware, who would be able to see past these base appeals and actually make decisions based off of real-life effects. However, the fact is these people aren't necessarily loyal to a party. As I like to say, if you win a voter's mind, then you win them for an election. If you win their heart, you have their loyalty forever. This can also play into the media problems that I talked about before to create serious issues with fake news, with people believing whatever their preferred political source says, regardless of whether it's a mischaracterization, whether it's false data, or whether it's simply based off of an anecdotal narrative instead of actual outcomes in real life. Of course, this is a problem that can be solved by greater press regulation, but we have to balance that with the inherent democracy and trust that's necessary in order to build a modern democracy. Consider the trust problems in media in countries such as the Philippines or Brazil. Voters don't have the inherent standards that you need in order to fully form a democracy such as you have in Canada, in the UK, or in France. This means that many voters are distrustful of the government and think that they will do whatever they can to seize power. This is somewhat justified by the actions of those governments in the Philippines or Brazil who have in the past tried to censor various media outlets simply for dissenting, instead of for publishing blatantly false information. Of course, this is a long-term process where we need to educate the public, where we need to establish those democratic institutions, where we need to develop further trust in our own countries, and if we live in those countries where we have a very high standard for media and for government honesty, then we should absolutely work the hardest we can in order to preserve those.
Moving on, an extremely destructive effect of this calcification is the so-called litmus test politics that you see in a lot of these countries where there is degrading levels of media responsibility. The idea behind litmus test politics is a comparison to the various chemical tests that you use in order to determine the pH of a liquid. If it's above a certain level of pH, then it turns blue and otherwise it turns red, or some other color depending on what you're trying to measure. Essentially, it means you have a black and white test. Essentially what it means is that you have a black and white test where you have one singular policy proposal that you absolutely have to have all of your candidates agree on instead of comparing a vast spectrum of political ideas and looking at the differences between your party and the other. What this means in practice is that you'll usually have a set of power brokers in any political party, including political figures or including media figures, that will work extremely hard to discredit and attack someone who doesn't agree with one specific policy, even if they're more in agreement with that party on everything else. Of course, you see this happening in the United States on issues such as abortion or immigration on both sides. Something that you might note about these issues is that they're also not the core issues that many elections are run on. They tend to be issues that fall under the umbrella of culture wars or are otherwise things that don't influence the vast majority of people in any meaningful way. If you were to forget everything you know about your country's politics and instead just use common sense to actually determine what would be those black and white issues, what would be the most central issues to actually force all party members to follow, then you would think that they're issues that apply to the broad public as a whole, something like social insurance or social security net, something like healthcare, something like taxation rates, things that affect the life and prosperity of every single person living in your country. However, this is not the case. And this is a combination of the media factors that I talked about last time and the politics of anger. Because when you have people who are constantly replying, who are constantly fighting back over issues, then it gains more attention and takes up more time in terms of peer-to-peer -peer discussions between ordinary people. Now, what this leads to is what I termed the politics of distraction. Politics which, instead of focusing on constructive policies, focuses on policies that have no ending, that can't be executed by the government, that have an enormous amount of pushback from the opposing side, and that actively works against the things that people largely agree on. Of course, constructive is a very broad term, and I'm going to narrow it down by giving three specific components. Number one, that it's actionable by the government. This means that A, it can be written into law, B, it can be actually enforced by various government departments or the establishment of a new one, and C, and that it doesn't violate some core principle of the government, such as the constitution of a country. Now, one case where this was not followed was in the most recent Canadian election, where there's a fair amount of fear-mongering over a past speech that the conservative nominee, Andrew Scheer, gave regarding same-sex marriage. Now, you have to ask yourself, what does a politician's past views have an impact on in terms of actually governing? Moreover, it's important to remember that in Canada, the Conservative Party is largely economically focused, following the legacy of the most recent Prime Minister for the Conservative Party, Stephen Harper. The Conservative Party was not running on any sort of policy that would restrict the civil liberties of the LGBTQ community. Additionally, those civil liberties were already granted by the Canadian courts. There is no policy that could be implemented that would actually justify some of the fear-mongering that went on about this candidate. You see, while some politicians do misstep and propose things that the government clearly has no power to do, the more common instance of the politics of distraction being used that doesn't follow this rule 
is one where politicians characterize their opponent as somehow cracking down on some core value of the opposing party. The problem with these types of attacks, at least when applied to reality, is that there are very strong democratic restrictions with most government systems that prevent this from ever being the case. Nonetheless, it's very easy to fool voters, especially with those baseline emotional appeals to those issues, to influence them into believing something that isn't actually true. The sheer government would not only avoid doing any such thing because it's incredibly unpopular, but also simply does not have the jurisdiction to. It's a diversion to distract Canadians from some of the more important issues of that election, including economic issues or corruption. The second step I like to call functionality, that it actually solves the problem it's supposed to address. Of course, one of the most famous instances of a policy that did the opposite of solving the problem is the war on drugs in countries such as the United States. Of course, the war on drugs was an attempt to crack down on crime by attacking individuals for both drug possession and distribution. Not only did this fail to reduce the level of drug use, but also stigmatized getting treatment, as well as diverting people towards more illegal sources such as organized crime. Compared to a system like Portugal, where drugs are decriminalized, there are actually better outcomes for people, higher rates of recovery for those who had started using drugs in Portugal, and also just lower harmful impacts coming out of drug use in Portugal in general. You can see that the war on drugs also violates the third rule that we're going to talk about, which is the adverse side effects. The policy influenced a rise in drug crime, including smuggling, that also led to more gang violence, led to homicides, led to assaults, etc. Because of this, some communities were impoverished, people who were arrested for possessing drugs had a permanent criminal record, and were harmed by the prison system as a whole, and there was significant damage to a lot of local communities that could have been easily avoided. The most important thing here is to compare the outcomes, to look at which people benefit and which people are hurt, and in a case like the war on drugs, hindsight clearly shows that many more people were hurt than those who benefited. Another example of this is the financial deregulation that happened prior to the 2008 financial crisis. Of course, countries with stricter regulations such as Canada did not have as harsh of an economic impact due to that economic collapse. This is because that while there may be short-term benefits to financial deregulation, they can also set up toxic assets, such as the junk bonds that caused the 2008 crisis, which, when falsely advertised and traded, created a buildup of financial risk that was just waiting to collapse. There are many more nuanced cases of things that can be argued of whether they accomplish the goal or not, whether they're actionable by the government or not, and whether they create adverse side effects or not. Many of these policies could only be recognized as failures years after they were implemented and data was collected. However, when we're thinking about policies to be implemented for the future, it's not necessarily a hard and fast rule on what's right and what's wrong. Instead, it's an indicator on what's a distraction and what's not. If the topics that are actually being discussed fall along these lines, if they fall along something that can be clearly defined and measured, then there can be a real substantive debate to be had on whether that policy would actually be beneficial to the people or not. Of course, regardless of whether you agree on something like universal healthcare, it is an argument over something that can be actionable by the government, that targets a specific goal, and while it may have adverse side effects, those can be weighed against the benefits. 
Whether you agree with universal healthcare or not, it's certainly something that follows this framework that can be debated over real life, that can be debated over outcomes, and can be debated by conducting research on how much it would benefit ordinary people. Keeping this framework in mind is how to avoid the politics of anger and distraction, to avoid retreating into partisan corners, and look at the shared goals that we all have and work towards them. In order to further understand how various countries around the world have morphed into this state of anger-based politics though, we have to have a deeper understanding of how public opinion interacts with politics. Once again, demographics play a huge role in this, but not as much as ideology. There's a key difference between the base, those who are incredibly ideologically loyal to one political party or the other, and those who are not. This is because the base is essentially malleable. Because of their high loyalty, because of their high emotional connection to one political party, they're very willing to accept the information that that political party's media allies or its leaders distribute to the public. Of course, the space usually consists disproportionately of captured demographics, although there can be some individuals that are part of the base that do fall into swing demographics. When a party tries to introduce a policy that is otherwise controversial, detrimental, or highly polarizing, the base is much more likely to actually accept this, the base is much more likely to hear the arguments in favor of this because of their high connection to the party, and they're much less likely to hear the criticisms from the opposing side. This means that regardless of the argument, you're going to have a higher approval of a new policy from your base than from swing voters or especially from the opposing party's base. They can even be resistant to data, and this plays into some of the fake news that I talked about before, where you can have falsified studies or falsified information, anecdotal elements that don't actually describe the vast majority of people, etc. that can all be used to distract a base and mislead it in order to prop up a policy that wouldn't actually solve the problems at hand and could even be counterproductive. However, one effect of those types of policies is that it pushes away swing voters. It pushes away those who are less likely to agree after processing information from both sides. If opposing arguments are more convincing, and you have very little in terms of actual data to back up a proposed policy, then many swing voters might decide to go in the other direction. This is a valid political play nonetheless, because by changing the base, you can then change public opinion at a broader scale over a long period of time. This is something that we'll talk about later. One key element that plays into this is something that is publicly termed the Overton Window. Coined by Joseph Overton, the Overton window is the spectrum of ideas that can be publicly discussed in media. It's essentially a system to narrow the focus of political discussion that generally designates what can be talked about and what can't. However, the problem with a system that is so heavily reliant on a small amount of individuals, those who run or work for large media corporations, you can have a negative side effect of the Overton window, where many media sources and political sources are able to bluff the majority. That means that they can either incorporate something into the Overton window that would be widely disapproved of by the public, or that they can reject something from the Overton window that the vast majority of the public supports. This can be used to manipulate public opinion and prevent voters from discussing things that otherwise would favor one party over the other. Of course, one of the most important conflicts of recent times in the media sphere is an argument about debunking things versus silencing them. The problem with mass media is that they're extremely powerful. 
If they give a voice to a representative who then spreads false information, it can be very difficult to correct that information over time, as many people will not see the correction and they will have a lasting impact from that false information that they initially received. At its core, this is a competence problem. You have journalists who are not sufficiently trained or who don't have sufficient information in one given area, who then have to go up against people who are not only willing to lie, but who spend the entirety of their career learning how to manipulate information and how to change public opinion without any fact backing it up. This is an extremely difficult role, and what makes matters worse is the extremely nepotistic industry that is media. Many media figures get a job simply because of their own family connections or political connections, and this means that sometimes journalists don't even follow the bare amount of verification that they need in order to educate the public, in order to repute false statistics or false narratives, and they fall into many of the traps that I discussed in my last episode where they accidentally spread misleading information. As with many of the other problems on this podcast, this is something that can be solved with higher standards for media and with higher standards of public education. However, as I said before, these are things that have to be implemented over the long term and rely on developing trust for public institutions and for government. The least we can do in the short term is to raise up those voices that have a history of being very professional, of being very well informed, and actually being willing to question false narratives and that have a good record of not falling for propaganda. You can see that the BBC does a good job of this many times, such as their recent interview with the Chinese ambassador where they had a journalist who was very willing to question the narratives being put out in the face of contradictory evidence. However, this also isn't just a problem with regards to regulation, but also with regards to the inherent incentive structures that exist within journalism. When you have journalistic systems that reward those with the most polarizing, most anger inciting, most partisan news, then you're not going to have those journalists who are willing to stick to the facts have a higher influence. Because there is such a low trust of media in various countries, this is something that can be incredibly difficult to steer in the right direction. It probably needs the emergence of a new news network or even importing journalists from those areas that do have a more robust news system, including Canada or Germany. A very interesting solution that some governments may oppose would actually be giving more credence to those reporting from outside of a given country than from inside of it. If you have a political media ecosystem where there is strong partisan influence over news sources and where news sources don't have that bare level of honesty and trust that it needs to have in order to function properly, then there should be strong considerations to be made for asking some media companies to come in from outside of the country, media companies hosted in countries with strong regulations with strong public trust and confidence, to actually report on the facts and set a baseline standard for the rest of that problematic country's media to follow. For example, in the United States, there is a very strong relationship with Canada, both economically and politically. There is trust built between the two countries that have lasted for many generations. The United States is currently in a downturn in terms of media health, and the Canadian system, while once again it still has its unique problems, is in a much better shape in terms of public trust and in terms of journalistic standards. I think that one of the solutions that can definitely be pushed for in the United States is to have that media expansion of certain companies in Canada with high journalistic standards in order to cover American news objectively and in order to cover it without the same partisan divides. One additional benefit of this is that party lines are often drawn in a very different way depending on country. This means that some issues that may be extremely polarizing in the United States 
may be able to be approached with a much more level head by journalists in Canada. Of course, you do have to watch out for topics that are polarized in that home country, but especially in media systems with higher journalistic standards, this will be less of a problem than it would be in the United States. However, there's a lot more to the politics of distraction than just media. After all, you can see it having an influence in a lot of those countries that do nonetheless have strong media systems, although to a lesser degree. The core of this comes in a theory that I like to call the theory of network capital. According to many polling sources, the way that public opinion changes over time is actually based on this individual peer-to-peer -peer discussions that ordinary people have with each other. However, most people are not significantly politically involved. They're distracted by their job, their life, etc. And because of this, not a lot of this peer-to-peer -peer discussion actually happens. When it does happen, it's often taken up by the most hot-button issue at the time, the issue that's being reported most frequently by the political media, or that it has a strong influence in an upcoming election. When you have discussion over a constructive topic, then you're actually able to work out some of the disagreements, you can better educate each other on a lot of the nuances with regards to each policy, and the various data and outcomes that it could have on each individual life. However, when you have an emotionally driven issue, one where the fundamental priorities are not in agreement, one where the debate is not actually along practical lines, but instead an argument wholly based on emotional appeals, then you tend not to actually see these same processes play out. Because of this, a lot of the damage that happens with regards to polarization, with regards to the politics of distraction, actually hurt the people that they're purporting to serve. Take the most recent example of Black Lives Matter. Right now, established political forces are trying to divert the conversation away from Black Lives Matter, away from the very practical policies such as police reform, economic desegregation of schools, and union reform, and towards things like statues or things like cancel culture that have very low impacts on actual people who have to struggle with their everyday lives, who are the ones who are actually the most harmed by those fundamental problems. To make a case that's even more obvious, the United States is one of two countries that doesn't have paid maternity leave. Now, you would expect this to be a hot-button issue, both among those who are trying to incentivize more families, and those who are fighting for feminism, who are fighting for women's liberation, because it's something that would be beneficial to the people that they're actually trying to help. When you have paid maternity leave, then mothers are not punished in their careers for having a child, they're given more personal freedoms. Additionally, it's a policy that would make it easier for families to have sustainable lives. It's something that would be beneficial to the priorities of the left and the right. However, because a lot of the network capital in those groups that would otherwise be concerned about paid maternity leave instead debate the calcifying, polarizing topic of abortion, they avoid the solution that is right in front of us, they avoid the solution that would actually address the fundamental issues, and instead waste all their time in a pseudo-moralistic argument that has made no real policy progress in the last few decades. In fact, paid maternity leave would actually be something that addresses the concerns of both of those sides of that debate. One of the biggest problems that people who are pro-abortion have is that children can have a detrimental impact on a mother's career and economic circumstances. Paid maternity leave is something that would solve this issue in many families. Similarly, one of the arguments that anti-abortion advocates make is that, in their view, children should not be sacrificed for economic circumstances. And once again, paid maternity leave is something that would address this problem head-on. 
Of course, it's not something that would be an all-encompassing solution, but it is a way to make progress that separates the partisan divides, that stops people from retreating to their emotionally driven corners, and actually helps all people. This is actually the root of all of the successful political movements of the last few decades. Take civil rights for example. They had constructive solutions addressing real problems based on the fundamental ideas of civil liberties that weren't being given to all people fairly. It took up a huge amount of network capital, with people going out on the streets, discourse happening every day, and a huge political focus in the media. And ultimately, it was able to strongly shift public opinion to what nearly everyone can agree is a better place. After all, if you look at many of those civil rights laws, they were things that were actionable, they were things that obviously have been put into law, such as the Civil Rights Act, they were things that addressed the problems head-on, including segregation and employment discrimination, and it was something that had much better benefits than adverse side effects. The most important thing to understand about constructive solutions is that it's actually extremely easy to recognize. If we shift things out of the existing political frameworks, out of the lines of debate that established political forces want us to have, we do end up discussing outcomes. We do end up discussing statistics and how to help the most people with a lot of shared values. In fact, it would actually be easy for a politician to win a general election arguing on lines like those. However, short-term costs get in the way. There are many party allies that wish to maintain party power and party loyalty at the cost of everything else, even if it means sacrificing the clarity and quality of debate. However, it's something that can be overcome simply by having good leaders in positions of power willing to make a short-term sacrifice, willing to do something that may open their party up to more accountability in order to make those significant changes in the political system, in order to restore more trust and accountability, and in order to redirect the political conversation back to the issues that actually change people's lives. In fact, there is still a significant portion of voters who do still vote on these policy priorities, who do still look at the outcomes, and who do focus on those productive issues. However, the problem is once again, the political incentives. I have to repeat this once again. If you win a voter's mind, then you win them for one election. If you win their heart, you get their loyalty forever. However, both parties play this game, and the only way to actually decalcify the opposition's base is to appeal to their real life, is to appeal to actual solutions that affect a vast majority of people. It's to focus on what matters, what's applicable, functional, and productive. There's also a chain effect where this happens, where you bring out one of these issues where you have a statistical appeal, where you have an appeal based on outcomes, then you force the adversary to respond. You force the opposing political parties to actually develop better plans, to address the same problem, to have a way to navigate the problem which would, at the very least, help the people in some degree. Because of this chain effect in media, once you get the media to talk about something that's constructive, as long as you can keep their attention, as long as you can continue to develop those ideas, then you can keep the narrative focused. You can keep people's eyes trained on the things that would actually benefit them. And this isn't impossible. Look at the media ecosystems of Canada, Germany, South Korea, and France. They absolutely have their problems, but they're nowhere near as destructive as many other countries around the world. Going back to the instance of the politics of distraction in Canada, that ended up not being the issue that voters focused on. In fact, one of the major reasons that Andrew Scheer lost was that he wasn't able to come up with an alternative climate plan to Justin Trudeau. Instead, he focused on a lot of personal attacks, which once again, fell flat.
This is what happens when you have a public that's relatively educated, when you have a public that's actually cognizant of what issues and solutions would affect them. And I'm going to do the same thing that I do every episode and talk about how this podcast is in and of itself a solution. If you're someone who's listening to this, if you're someone who understands the underlying theories and political forces at play, then you're going to be someone who understands how to navigate them, someone who understands when the media is trying to distract you, someone who understands how various statistics can be interpreted, someone that understands the very tangible way that different policies can benefit you. So as always, like, comment, subscribe, and share to as many people on your social media. Remember, this not only helps me, it helps the public, and it helps them. It helps your friends who want to have an influence on the public, who want to have a cleaner, more efficient media system. However, while this podcast is still small, every single person who listens to it is influenced to have better peer-to-peer discussions, to participate in the systems of network capital, and to actually discuss the issues at hand. Even if you're someone who isn't active on social media, who doesn't want to share the podcast, just message someone who you know, talk to someone who likes to talk about politics, or just someone who's close to you, like a friend or a family member. Talk to them about the theory of network capital. Talk to them about how they could be manipulated by political forces. If we let that spread, if we let that permeate the public, then it creates a natural defense against those systems that wish to distract, that wish to corrupt systems of government and media. And we create a better world for all of us.